0: Hi everyone, this is Robert. Welcome to the Well-Told Tale. Every week we bring you the finest science fiction and fantasy stories ever written. Today we return to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Our heroes are now on board the immense submarine the Nautilus. Prisoners, but able to roam throughout the astonishing vessel. Pierre Aranax, our main POV character, has met his host, Captain Nemo, and been shown around. But now what? What does Nemo have in store for them? It's time to pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy part four of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Chapter 13. The Black River The portion of the terrestrial globe which is covered by water is estimated at upwards of 80 millions of acres, This fluid mass comprises hundred and fifty millions of cubic miles, forming a spherical body of a diameter of 60 leagues, the weight of which would be three quintillions of tonnes. To comprehend the meaning of these figures, it is necessary to observe that a quintillion is to a billion as a billion is to unity. In other words, there are as many billions in a quintillion as there are units in a billion. This mass of fluid is equal to about the quantity of water which would be discharged by all the rivers of the earth in 40,000 years. During the geological epochs, the Igneous period succeeded to the aqueous, the ocean originally prevailed everywhere, then by degrees in the Silurian period the tops of the mountains began to appear, the islands emerged, then disappeared in partial deluges, reappeared, then became settled, formed continents, till at length the earth became geographically arranged, as we see in the present day. The solid had rested from the liquid 37,657 square miles, equal to twelve billion nine hundred and sixty millions of acres. The shape of continents allows us to divide the water into five great portions, the Arctic or frozen ocean, the Antarctic or frozen ocean, the Indian, the Atlantic and Pacific oceans. The Pacific Ocean extends from north to south between the two polar circles and from east to west between Asia and America over an extent of 145 degrees of longitude. It is the quietest of seas, its currents are broad and slow, it has medium tides and abundant rain. Such was the ocean that my fate destined me first to travel over under these strange conditions. "'Sir,' said Captain Nemo, "'we will, if you please, take our bearings and fix the starting point of this voyage. It is a quarter to twelve. I will go up again to the surface.' The captain pressed an electric clock three times. The pumps began to drive the water from the tanks, the needle of the manometer marked by a different pressure, the ascent of the Nautilus. Then it stopped. "'We have arrived,' said the captain. I went to the central staircase which opened onto the platform, clambered up the iron steps and found myself on the upper part of the Nautilus.' The platform was only three feet out of water. The front and back of the Nautilus was of that spindle shape which caused it justly to be compared to a cigar. I noticed that its iron plates, slightly overlaying each other, resembled the shell which clothes the bodies of our large terrestrial reptiles. It explained to me how natural it was, in spite of all glasses, that this boat should have been taken for a marine animal.' Toward the middle of the platform, the longboat, half buried in the hull of the vessel, formed a slight excrescence. Fore and aft rose two cages of medium height with inclined sides, and partly closed by thick lenticular glasses, one destined for the steersman who directed the Nautilus, the other containing a brilliant lantern to give light on the road. The sea was beautiful, the sky pure. Scarcely could the long vehicle feel the broad undulations of the ocean. A light breeze from the east rippled the surface of the waters. The horizon, free from fog, made observation easy. Nothing was in sight. Not a quicksand, not an island. A vast desert. Captain Nemo, by the help of his sextant, took the altitude of the sun, which ought also to give the latitude. He waited for some moments till its disc touched the horizon.' While taking observations, not a muscle moved. The instrument could not have been more motionless than a hand of marble. Twelve o'clock, sir,' said he. I cast a last look upon the sea, slightly yellowed by the Japanese coast, and descended to the saloon. "'And now, sir, I leave you to your studies,' added the captain. "'Our course is east northeast "'Our depth is twenty-six fathoms. "'Here are maps on a large scale by which you may follow it. "'The saloon is at your disposal, and with your permission, I will retire.' Captain Nemo bowed, and I remained alone, "'lost in thoughts all bearing on the commander of the Nautilus. "'For a whole hour I was deep in these reflections, "'seeking to pierce this mystery so interesting to me.' Then my eyes fell upon the vast plenisphere spread out upon the table, and I placed my finger on the very spot where the given latitude and longitude crossed. The sea has its large rivers like the continents. They are special currents known by their temperature and their colour. The most remarkable of these is known by the name of the Gulf Stream.' Science has decided on the globe the direction of five principal currents, one in the North Atlantic, a second in the South, a third in the North Pacific, a fourth in the South, and a fifth in the Southern Indian Ocean. It is even probable that a sixth current existed at one time or another in the Northern Indian Ocean when the Caspian Sea and Aral Seas formed but one vast sheet of water. At this point indicated on the planisphere, one of these currents was rolling, the Kuro-Skivo of the Japanese, the Black River, which, leaving the Gulf of Bengal, where it is warmed by the perpendicular rays of a tropical sun, crosses the Straits of Malacca along the coast of Asia, turns into the North Pacific to the Aleutian Islands, carrying with it trunks of camphor trees and other indigenous productions, and edging the waves of the ocean with the pure indigo of its warm water. It was this current that the Nautilus was to follow. I followed it with my eye, saw it lose itself in the vastness of the Pacific, and felt myself drawn with it when Ned Land and Conseil appeared at the door of the saloon. My two brave companions remained petrified at the sight of the wonders spread before them. "'Where are we?' exclaimed the Canadian. "'In the museum at Quebec.' My friends, I answered, making a sign for them to enter, you are not in Canada, but on board the Nautilus, fifty yards below the level of the sea. But, Monsieur Aranax, said Ned Land, can you tell me how many men there are on board? Ten, twenty, fifty, a hundred? I cannot answer you, Mr. Land. It is better to abandon for a time all idea of seizing the Nautilus or escaping from it. This ship is a masterpiece of modern industry, and I should be sorry not to have seen it. Many people would accept the situation forced upon us, if only to move amongst such wonders. So be quiet and let us try and see what passes around us. See, exclaimed the harpooner, but we can see nothing in this iron prison. We are walking, we are sailing blindly. Ned Land had scarcely pronounced these words when all was suddenly darkness. The luminous ceiling was gone, and so rapidly that my eyes received a painful impression. We remained mute, not stirring, and not knowing what surprise awaited us, whether agreeable or disagreeable. A sliding noise was heard. One would have said that the Panels were working at the sides of the Nautilus. "'It is the end of the end,' said Ned Land. Suddenly light broke at each side of the saloon through two oblong openings. The liquid mass appeared vividly lit up by the electric gleam. Two crystal plates separated us from the sea. At first I trembled at the thought that this frail partition might break, but strong bands of copper bound them, giving an almost infinite power of resistance.' the sea was distinctly visible for a mile all round the nautilus what a spectacle what pen can describe it who could paint the effects of the light through those transparent sheets of water and the softness of the successive gradations from the lower to the superior strata of the ocean We know the transparency of the sea and that its clearness is far beyond that of rock water. The mineral and organic substances which it holds in suspension heightens its transparency. In certain parts of the ocean, at the Antilles, under 75 fathoms of water can be seen with surprising clearness a bed of sand. The penetrating power of the solar rays does not seem to cease for a depth of 150 fathoms. But in this middle fluid travelled over by the Nautilus, the electric brightness was produced even in the bosom of the waves. It was no longer luminous water, but liquid light. On each side, a window opened into this unexplored abyss. The obscurity of the saloon showed to advantage the brightness outside, and we looked out as if this pure crystal had been the glass of an immense aquarium. You wish to see, friend Ned. Well, now you see. "'Curious, curious,' muttered the Canadian, who, forgetting his ill-temper, seemed to submit to some irresistible attraction, and one would come further than this to admire such a sight. Ah,' thought I to myself, "'I understand the life of this man. He has made a world apart for himself, in which he treasures all his greatest wonders.' For two whole hours an aquatic army escorted the Nautilus. During their games, their bounds, while rivalling each other in beauty, brightness and velocity, I distinguished the banded mullet marked by a double line of black, the round-tailed goby of a white colour with violet spots on the back, a Japanese scombrus, a beautiful mackerel of those seas with a blue body and silvery head, the brilliant azorzas, whose name alone defies description, some banded spares with variegated fins of blue and yellow, the woodcocks of the seas, some specimens of which attain a yard in length, Japanese salamanders, spider lampreys, serpents six feet long with eyes small and lively, and a huge mouth bristling with teeth, and many other species.' Our imagination was kept at its height. Interjections quickly followed on one from another. Ned named the fish and Conseil classed them. I was in ecstasies with the vivacity of their movements and the beauty of their forms. Never had it been given to me to surprise these animals alive and at liberty in their natural element. I will not mention all the varieties which passed before my dazzled eyes, all the collection of the seas of China and Japan. These fish, more numerous than the birds of the air, came attracted, no doubt, by the brilliant focus of the electric light. Suddenly there was daylight in the saloon. The iron panels closed again, and the enchanting vision disappeared. But for a long time I dreamt on, till my eyes fell on the instruments hanging on the partition— the compass still showed the course to be east northeast. The manometer indicated a pressure of five atmospheres, equivalent to a depth of 25 fathoms, and the electric log gave a speed of 15 miles an hour. I expected Captain Nemo, but he did not appear. The clock marked the hour of five. Ned Land and Conseil returned to their cabin, and I retired to my chamber. My dinner was ready. It was composed of turtle soup made of the most delicate hawksbills, of a surmullet served with a puff paste, the liver of which, prepared by itself, was most delicious, and fillets of the emperor holocanthus, the savour of which seemed to me superior even to salmon.' I passed the evening reading, writing and thinking, then sleep overpowered me, and I stretched myself on my couch of Zostera and slept profoundly whilst the Nautilus was gliding rapidly through the current of the Black River. Chapter 14 A Note of Invitation The next day was the 9th of November. I awoke after a long sleep of twelve hours. Conseil came, according to custom, to know how I had passed the night and to offer his services. He had left his friend the Canadian sleeping like a man who had never done anything else all his life. I let the worthy fellow chatter as he pleased, without caring to answer him. I was preoccupied by the absence of the captain during our sitting of the day before, and hoping to see him today. As soon as I was dressed, I went into the saloon. It was deserted.' I plunged into the study of the shell treasures hidden beneath the glasses. I revelled also in great herbals filled with the rarest marine plants, which, although dried up, retained their lovely colours. Amongst these precious hydrophytes, I revelled also in great herbals filled with the rarest marine plants, which, although dried up, retained their lovely colours. The whole day passed without my being honoured by a visit from Captain Nemo. The panels of the saloon did not open. Perhaps they did not wish us to tire of these beautiful things. The course of the Nautilus was east northeast, her speed 12 knots, the depth below the surface between 25 and 30 fathoms. The next day, 10th of November, the same desertion, the same solitude. I did not see one of the ship's crew. Ned and Conseil spent the greater part of the day with me. They were astonished at the inexplicable absence of the captain. Was this singular man ill? Had he altered his intentions with regard to us? After all, as Conseil said, we enjoyed perfect liberty, we were delicately and abundantly fed, our host kept to his terms of the treaty. We could not complain, and indeed the singularity of our fate reserved such wonderful compensation for us that we had no right to accuse it as yet.' That day I commenced the journal of these adventures, which has enabled me to relate them with more scrupulous exactitude and minute detail. I wrote it on paper made from the Zostera Marina. 11th of November, early in the morning, the fresh air spreading over the interior of the nautilus told me that we had come to the surface of the ocean to renew our supply of oxygen. I directed my steps to the central staircase and mounted the platform. It was six o'clock. The weather was cloudy, the sea grey but calm, scarcely a billow. Captain Nemo, whom I hoped to meet, would he be there? I saw no one but the steersman imprisoned in his glass cage. I inhaled the salt breeze with delight. By degrees the fog disappeared under the action of the sun's rays. The radiant orb rose from behind the eastern horizon. The sea flamed under its glance like a train of gunpowder. The clouds scattered in the heights, were coloured with lively tints of beautiful shades, and numerous mare's tails which betokened wind for that day. But what was wind to this nautilus which tempests could not frighten? I was admiring this joyous rising of the sun, so gay and so life-giving, when I heard steps approaching the platform. I was prepared to salute Captain Nemo, but it was his second, whom I had already seen on the captain's first visit, who appeared. He advanced on the platform, not seeming to see me. With his powerful glass to his eye, he scanned every point of the horizon with great attention. This examination over, he approached the panel and pronounced a sentence in exactly these terms. I have remembered it, for every morning it was repeated under exactly the same conditions. It was thus worded, "Notron Respok Lorni Virch. What it meant, I could not say. These words pronounced, the second descended. I thought that the Nautilus was about to return to its submarine navigation. I regained the panel and returned to my chamber. Five days sped thus, without any change in our situation. Every morning I mounted the platform. The same phrase was pronounced by the same individual, but Captain Nemo did not appear. I had made up my mind that I should never see him again, when, on the 16th of November, on returning to my room with Ned and Conseil, I found upon my table a note addressed to me— I opened it impatiently. It was written in a bold, clear hand, the characters rather pointed, recalling the German type. The note was worded as follows. 16th of November, 1867. To Professor Aranax, on board the Nautilus. Captain Nemo invites Professor Aranax to a hunting party, which will take place tomorrow morning in the forests on the island of Crespo. He hopes that nothing will prevent the Professor from being present, and he will with pleasure see him joined by his companions.' Captain Nemo, commander of the Nautilus. "'A hunt!' exclaimed Ned. "'And in the forests of the island of Crespo?' added Conseil. "'Oh, then the gentleman is going on terra firma?' replied Ned Land. "'That seems to me to be clearly indicated,' said I, reading the letter once more. "'Well, we must accept,' said the Canadian, "'but once more on dry land we shall know what to do. "'Indeed, I shall not be sorry to eat a piece of fresh venison.' without seeking to reconcile what was contradictory between Captain Nemo's manifest aversion to islands and continents and his invitation to hunt in a forest, I contented myself with replying, let us first see where the island of Crespo is. I consulted the planisphere, and in 32 degrees 40 north latitude and 157 degrees 50 west longitude, I found a small island, recognised in 1801 by Captain Crespo, and marked in the ancient Spanish maps as Roca de la Plata, the meaning of which is the Silver Rock. We were then about 1800 miles from our starting point, and the course of the Nautilus, a little changed, was bringing it back towards the southeast. I showed this little rock lost in the midst of the North Pacific to my companions. If Captain Nemo does sometimes go on dry ground, said I, he at least chooses desert islands. Ned Land shrugged his shoulders without speaking, and Concee and he left me. After supper, which was served by the steward mute and impassive, I went to bed, not without some anxiety. The next morning, the 17th of November, on awakening, I felt that the Nautilus was perfectly still. I dressed quickly and entered the saloon. Captain Nemo was there, waiting for me. He rose, bowed, and asked me if it was convenient for me to accompany him. As he made no allusion to his absence during the last eight days, I did not mention it, and simply answered that my companions and myself were ready to follow him we entered the dining-room where breakfast was served. "'Monsieur Aronnax said the captain, "'pray, share my breakfast without ceremony. "'We will chat as we eat. "'For though I promised you a walk in the forest, "'I did not undertake to find hotels there, "'so breakfast as a man who will most likely "'not have his dinner till very late. "'I did honour to the repast. "'It was composed of several kinds of fish "'and slices of holothirundae, excellent zoophytes, "'and different sorts of seaweed.' Our drink consisted of pure water, to which the captain added some drops of a fermented liquor. Captain Nemo ate at first without saying a word, then he began, Sir, when I proposed to you to hunt in my submarine forest of Crespo, you evidently thought me mad. Sir, you should never judge lightly of any man. But, Captain, believe me, be kind enough to listen, and you will then see whether you have any cause to accuse me of folly and contradiction.' I listen. You know as well as I do, Professor, that man can live underwater, provided he carries with him a sufficient supply of breathable air. In submarine works, the workman, clad in an impervious dress with his head in a metal helmet, receives air from above by means of forcing pumps and regulators. That is diving apparatus, said I. "'Just so. But under these conditions the man is not at liberty. He is attached to the pump which sends him air through an India-rubber tube, and if we were obliged to be thus held to the Nautilus, we could not go far.' "'And the means for getting free?' I asked." It is to use the Rucairol apparatus, invented by two of your own countrymen, which I have brought to perfection for my own use, and which will allow you to risk yourself under these new physiological conditions without any organ whatever suffering. It consists of a reservoir of thick iron plates, in which I store the air under a pressure of 50 atmospheres. This reservoir is fixed on the back by means of braces, like a soldier's knapsack. Its upper part forms a box, in which the air is kept by means of a bellows and therefore cannot escape unless at its normal tension. In the rouquet roll apparatus such as we use, two India rubber tubes leave this box and join a sort of tent which holds the nose and mouth. One is to introduce fresh air, the other to let out the fowl, and the tongue closes one or the other according to the wants of the respirator. But I, in encountering great pressures at the bottom of the sea, was obliged to shut my head like that of a diver in a ball of copper, and it is to this ball of copper that the two pipes, the inspirator and the expirator, open. Perfectly, Captain Nemo, but the air that you carry with you must soon be used. When it only contains fifteen percent of oxygen, it is no longer fit to breathe. Right.' "'But I told you, Monsieur Aronnax, that the pumps of the Nautilus allow me to store the air under considerable pressure, and on those conditions the reservoir of the apparatus can furnish breathable air for nine or ten hours.' "'I have no further objections to make,' I answered. "'I will only ask you one thing, Captain. How can you light your road at the bottom of the sea?' "'With the Rumkorff apparatus, Monsieur Aronnax, "'One is carried on the back, the other is fastened to the waist. "'It is composed of a Bunsen pile.' which I do not work with bichromate of potash but with sodium. A wire is introduced which collects the electricity produced and directs it towards a particularly made lantern. In this lantern is a spiral glass which contains a small quantity of carbonic gas. When the apparatus is at work, this gas becomes luminous, giving out a white and continuous light, thus provided I can breathe and I can see. "'Captain Nemo, to all my objections you make such crushing answers that I dare no longer doubt, but if I am forced to admit the Rouquet roll and Rumkorf apparatuses, I must be allowed some reservations with regard to the gun I am to carry.' "'But it is not a gun for powder,' answered the captain. "'Then it is an air gun?' "'Doubtless. How would you have me manufacture gunpowder on board without either saltpetre, sulphur or charcoal?' Besides, I added to fire under water in a medium eight hundred and fifty five times denser than the air, we must conquer very considerable resistance. That would be no difficulty. There exist guns, according to Fulton, perfected in England by Philip Coles and Burley, in France by Fury, and in Italy by Landy, which are furnished with a peculiar system of closing which can fire under these conditions. But, I repeat, having no powder, I use air under great pressure, which the pumps of the Nautilus furnish abundantly. But this air must be rapidly used. Well, "'Have I not my rouquet reservoir, which I can furnish it at need? A tap is all that is required. Besides, Monsieur Aranax, you must see yourself that during our submarine hunt we can spend but little air and but few balls. But it seems to me that in this twilight and in the midst of this fluid, which is very dense compared with the atmosphere, shots could not go far nor easily prove mortal.' "'Sir, on the contrary, with this gun every blow is mortal, "'and however lightly the animal is touched, "'it falls as if struck by a thunderbolt. "'Why?' "'Because the balls sent by this gun are not ordinary balls, but little cases of glass, invented by Lenibrek, an Austrian chemist, of which I have a large supply. These glass cases are covered with a case of steel and weighted with a pellet of lead. They are real laden bottles, into which the electricity is forced into a very high tension, with the slightest shock they are discharged, and the animal, however strong it may be, falls dead.' I must tell you that these cases are size number four, and the charge for an ordinary gun would be ten. I will argue no longer, I replied, rising from the table. I have nothing left to me but to take my gun. At all events, I will go where you are. Captain Nemo then led me after, and in passing before Ned's and Conseil's cabin, I called my two companions, who followed immediately. We then came to a kind of cell near the machinery room in which we were to put on our walking dress.' Chapter 15. A Walk on the Bottom of the Sea This cell was, to speak correctly, the arsenal and wardrobe of the Nautilus. A dozen diving apparatuses hung from the partition, waiting our use. Ned Land, on seeing them, showed evident repugnance to dress himself in one. But, my worthy Ned, the forests of the island of Crespo are nothing but submarine forests. Good said the disappointed Harpooner, who saw his dreams of fresh meat fade away. And you, Monsieur Aranax, are you going to dress yourself in these clothes? There is no alternative, Master Ned. As you please, sir, replied the Harpooner, shrugging his shoulders. But as for me, unless I am forced, I will never get into one. No one will force you, Master Ned, said Captain Nemo. Is Conseil going to risk it? asked Ned. "'I follow my master wherever he goes,' replied Conseil. "'At the captain's call, two of the ship's crew came to help us dress in these heavy and impervious clothes made of India rubber without seam, and constructed expressly to resist considerable pressure. One would have thought it a suit of armour both supple and resisting.' This suit formed trousers and waistcoat. The trousers were finished off with thick boots, weighted with heavy-laden soles. The texture of the waistcoat was held together by bands of copper, which crossed the chest, protecting it from the great pressure of the water and leaving the lungs free to act. The sleeves ended in gloves, which in no way restrained the movement of the hands.' There was a vast difference noticeable between these consummate apparatuses and the old cork breastplates, jackets and other contrivances in vogue during the 18th century. Captain Nemo and one of his companions, a sort of Hercules who must have possessed great strength, Conseil and myself, were soon enveloped in the dresses. There remained nothing more to be done but to enclose our heads in the metal box. But before proceeding to this operation, I asked the captain's permission to examine the guns we were to carry. One of the Nautilus's men gave me a simple gun, the butt-end of which, made of steel, hollow in the centre, was rather large. It served as a reservoir for compressed air, which a valve, worked by a spring, allowed to escape into a metal tube. A box of projectiles, in a groove in the thickness of the butt-end, contained about twenty of these electric balls, which, by means of a spring, were forced into the barrel of the gun. As soon as one shot was fired, another was ready. Captain Nemo said I. This arm is perfect and easily handled. I only ask to be allowed to try it. But how shall we gain the bottom of the sea? At this moment, Professor, the Nautilus is stranded in five fathoms, and we have nothing to do but start. But how shall we get off? You shall see. Captain Nemo thrust his head into the helmet. Conseil and I did the same, not without hearing an ironical— Good sport, from the Canadian. The upper part of our dress terminated in a copper collar upon which was screwed the metal helmet. Three holes, protected by thick glass, allowed us to see in all directions by simply turning our head in the interior of the headdress. As soon as it was in position, the apparatus on our backs began to act, and for my part, I could breathe with ease.' With the lamp hanging from my belt and the gun in my hand, I was ready to set out, but, to speak the truth, imprisoned in these heavy garments and glued to the deck by my leaden soles, it was impossible for me to take a step. But this state of things was provided for. I felt myself being pushed into a little room contiguous to the wardrobe room. My companions followed, towed along in the same way. I heard a watertight door furnished with stopper plates close upon us, and we were wrapped in profound darkness.' After some minutes, a loud hissing was heard. I felt the cold mount from my feet to my chest. Evidently from some part of the vessel they had, by means of a tap, given entrance to the water which was invading us and with which the room was soon filled. A second door, cut in the side of the Nautilus, then opened. We saw a faint light. In another instant, our feet trod the bottom of the sea. And now— How can I retrace the impression left upon me by that walk under the waters? Words are impotent to relate such wonders. Captain Nemo walked in front, his companion followed some steps behind. Conseil and I remained near each other, as if an exchange of words had been possible through our metallic cases. I no longer felt the weight of my clothing, or of my shoes, of my reservoir of air, or my thick helmet, in the midst of which my head rattled like an almond in its shell.' The light which lit the soil 30 feet below the surface of the ocean astonished me by its power. The solar rays shone through the watery mass easily and dissipated all colour, and I clearly distinguished objects at a distance of a 150 yards. Beyond that, the tints darkened into fine gradations of ultramarine and faded into vague obscurity. Truly, this water which surrounded me was but another air, denser than the terrestrial atmosphere but almost as transparent.' Above me was the calm surface of the sea. We were walking on fine, even sand, not wrinkled as on a flat shore, which retains the impression of the billows. This dazzling carpet, really a reflector, repelled the rays of the sun with wonderful intensity, which accounted for the vibration which penetrated every atom of liquid. Shall I be believed when I say that, at the depth of thirty feet, I could see as if I was in broad daylight?' For a quarter of an hour I trod on this sand, sown with the impalpable dust of shells. The hull of the Nautilus, resembling a long shoal, disappeared by degrees, but its lantern, when darkness should overtake us in the waters, would help to guide us on board by its distinct rays.' Soon forms of objects outlined in the distance were discernible. I recognised magnificent rocks, hung with a tapestry of zoophytes of the most beautiful kind, and I was at first struck by the peculiar effect of this medium. It was then ten in the morning. The rays of the sun struck the surface of the waves at a rather oblique angle, and then at the touch of their light, decomposed by refraction as through a prism— Flowers, rocks, plants, shells and polypi were shaded at the edges by the seven solar colours. It was marvellous. A feast for the eyes, this complication of coloured tints. A perfect kaleidoscope of green, yellow, orange, violet, indigo and blue. In one word, the whole palette of an enthusiastic colorist. Why could I not communicate to Conseil the lively sensations which were mounting to my brain, and rival him in expressions of admiration? For aught I knew, Captain Nemo and his companion might be able to exchange thoughts by means of signs previously agreed upon. So, for want of better, I talked to myself. I declaimed in the copper box which covered my head, thereby expending more air in vain words than was perhaps expedient.' Various kinds of Isis, clusters of pure tuft coral, prickly fungi and anemones formed a brilliant garden of flowers, enamelled with porphyry, decked with their colorettes of blue tentacles, sea stars studying the sandy bottom, together with asterophytons like fine lace embroidered by the hands of naiads, whose festoons were waved by the gentle undulations caused by our walk. It was a real grief to me to crush under my feet the brilliant specimens of of mollusks, which strewed the ground by thousands, of hammerheads, of staircases, and red helmet shells, angel wings, and many others produced by this inexhaustible ocean. But we were bound to walk, so we went on. Whilst above our heads waved shoals of philocides, leaving their tentacles to float in their train, Medusae, whose umbrellas of opal or rose-pink scalloped with a band of blue, sheltered us from the rays of the sun, which in the darkness would have strewn our path with phosphorescent light. All these wonders I saw, in the space of a quarter of a mile, scarcely stopping and following Captain Nemo, who beckoned me on by signs— Soon the nature of the soil changed. To the sandy plain succeeded an extent of slimy mud, which the Americans call ooze. We then travelled over a plain of seaweed of wild and luxuriant vegetation. This sward was of close texture and soft to the feet, and rivalled the softest carpet woven by the hand of man. But whilst verdure was spread at our feet, it did not abandon our heads. A light network of marine plants, of that inexhaustible family of seaweeds, of which more than two thousand kinds are known, grew on the surface of the water. I saw long ribbons of fucus floating, some globular, some tuberous. I noticed that the green plants kept nearer the top of the sea, whilst the red were at a greater depth, leaving to the black or brown hydrophytes the care of forming gardens and parterres in the remote beds of the ocean we had quitted the nautilus about an hour and a half it was near noon i knew by the perpendicularity of the sun's rays which were no longer refracted the magical colours disappeared by degrees and the shades of emerald and sapphire were effaced We walked with a regular step which rang upon the ground with astonishing intensity. The slightest noise was transmitted with a quickness to which the air is unaccustomed on the earth. Indeed, water is a better conductor of sound than air, in the ratio of four to one. At this period the earth sloped downwards. The light took a uniform tint. We were at a depth of a 105 yards and 20 inches, undergoing a pressure of six atmospheres.' At this depth I could still see the rays of the sun, though feebly, to their intense brilliancy had succeeded a reddish twilight, the lowest state between day and night, but we could still see well enough. It was not necessary to resort to the apparatus as yet. At this moment Captain Nemo stopped. He waited till I joined him, and then pointed to an obscure mass looming in the shadow at a short distance. It is the forest of the island of Crespo, thought I. I was not mistaken. Chapter 16. A Submarine Forest We had at last arrived on the borders of this forest, doubtless one of the finest of Captain Nemo's immense domains. He looked upon it as his own, and considered he had the same right over it that the first men had in the first days of the world, and indeed— who would have disputed with him the possession of this submarine property? What other hardier pioneer would come, hatchet in hand, to cut down the dark copses? This forest was comprised of large tree-plants, and the moment we penetrated under its vast arcades I was struck by the singular position of their branches, a position I had not yet observed. Not a herb which carpeted the ground— Not a branch which clothed the trees was either broken or bent, nor did they extend horizontally, all stretched up to the surface of the ocean. Not a filament, not a ribbon, however thin they might be, but kept as straight as a rod of iron. They grew in rigid perpendicular lines due to the density of the element which had produced them. Motionless yet, when bent one side by the hand, they directly resumed their former position. Truly, it was the region of perpendicularity.' I soon accustomed myself to this fantastic position, as well as to the comparative darkness which surrounded us. The soil of the forest seemed covered with sharp blocks, difficult to avoid. The submarine flora struck me as being very perfect, and richer even than it would have been in the arctic or tropical zones where these productions are not so plentiful, but for some minutes I involuntarily confounded the genera, taking animals for plants, and who would not have been mistaken? The fauna and the flora are too closely allied in this submarine world. These plants are self-propagated, and the principle of their existence is in the water which upholds and nourishes them. The greater number, instead of leaves, shoot forth blades of capricious shapes, comprised within a scale of colours pink, carmine, green, olive, fawn, and brown. ''Curious anomaly, fantastic element,'' said an ingenious naturalist, ''in which the animal kingdom blossoms and the vegetable does not.'' In about an hour, Captain Nemo gave the signal to halt. ''I, for my part, was not sorry, and we stretched ourselves under an arbour of Alarai, the thin long blades of which stood up like arrows.'' This short rest seemed delicious to me. There was nothing wanting but the charm of conversation, but impossible to speak, impossible to answer. I only put my great copper head to conseil's. I saw the worthy fellow's eyes glistening with delight, and to show his satisfaction, he shook himself in his breastplate of air in the most comical way in the world. After four hours of this walking, I was surprised not to find myself dreadfully hungry. How to account for this state of the stomach, I could not tell, but instead I felt an insurmountable desire to sleep, which happens to all divers, and my eyes soon closed behind the thick glass, and I fell into a heavy slumber, which the movement alone had prevented before. Captain Nemo and his robust companion, stretched in the clear crystal, set us the example. How long I remained buried in this drowsiness, I cannot judge, but when I woke, the sun seemed sinking towards the horizon. Captain Nemo had already risen, and I was beginning to stretch my limbs when an unexpected apparition brought me briskly to my feet. A few steps off, a monstrous sea spider, about thirty-eight inches high, was watching me with squinting eyes, ready to spring upon me. Though my diver's dress was thick enough to defend me from the bite of this animal, I could not help shuddering with horror. Conseil and the Sailor of the Nautilus awoke at this moment. Captain Nemo pointed out the hideous crustacean, which a blow from the butt-end of the gun knocked over, and I saw the horrible claws of the monster writhe in terrible convulsions. This incident reminded me that other animals, more to be feared, might haunt these obscure depths, against whose attacks my diving dress would not protect me. I had never thought of it before, but I now resolved to be on my guard— Indeed, I thought that this halt would mark the termination of our walk, but I was mistaken, for instead of returning to the Nautilus, Captain Nemo continued his bold excursion. The ground was still on the incline. Its declivities seemed to be getting greater, and to be leading us to greater depths. It must have been about three o'clock when we reached a narrow valley between high, perpendicular walls, situated about seventy-five fathoms deep. Thanks to the perfection of our apparatus, we were forty-five fathoms below the limit which nature seems to have imposed on man as to his submarine excursions. I say seventy-five fathoms, though I had no instrument by which to judge the distance. But I knew that even in the clearest waters the solar rays could not penetrate further, and accordingly the darkness deepened. At ten paces not an object was visible. I was groping my way when I suddenly saw a brilliant white light. Captain Nemo had just put his electric apparatus into use, his companion did the same, and Conseil and I followed their example. By turning a screw, I established a communication between the wire and the spiral glass, and the sea, lit by our four lanterns, was illuminated for a circle of thirty-six yards. As we walked, I thought the light of our Rumkopf apparatus could not fail to draw some inhabitant from its dark couch, but if they did approach us, they at least kept at a respectful distance from the hunters. Several times I saw Captain Nemo stop, put his gun to his shoulder, and after some moments drop it and walk on. At last, after about four hours, this marvellous excursion came to an end. A wall of superb rocks in an imposing mass rose before us, a heap of gigantic blocks, an enormous steep granite shore forming dark grottos, but which presented no practical slope. It was the prop of the island of Crespo. It was the earth. Captain Nemo stopped suddenly. A gesture of his brought us all to a halt, and however desirous I might be to scale the wall, I was obliged to stop. "'Here ended Captain Nemo's domains, and he would not go beyond them. "'Further on was a portion of the globe he might not trample upon. "'The return began. "'Captain Nemo had returned to the head of his little band, "'directing their course without hesitation. "'I thought we were not following the same route to return to the Nautilus. "'The new road was very steep and consequently very painful.' We approached the surface of the sea rapidly, but this return to the upper strata was not so sudden as to cause relief from the pressure too rapidly, which might have produced serious disorder in our organization and brought on internal lesions so fatal to divers. Very soon, light reappeared and grew, and the sun being low on the horizon, the refraction edged the different objects with a spectral ring. At ten yards and a half deep, we walked amidst a shoal of little fishes of all kinds, more numerous than the birds of the air, and also more agile. But no aquatic game worthy of a shot had as yet met our gaze, when at that moment I saw the captain shoulder his gun quickly and follow a moving object into the shrubs. He fired. I heard a slight hissing, and a creature fell stunned at some distance from us. It was a magnificent sea otter the only exclusively marine quadruped. This otter was five feet long and must have been very valuable. Its skin, chestnut brown above and silvery underneath, would have made one of those beautiful furs so sought after in the Russian and Chinese markets. The fineness and luster of its coat would certainly fetch eighty pounds. I admired this curious mammal with its rounded head ornamented with short ears, its round eyes and its white whiskers like those of a cat with webbed feet and nails and tufted tail. This precious animal, hunted and tracked by fishermen, has now become very rare and taken refuge chiefly in the northern parts of the Pacific, or probably its race would soon become extinct. Captain Nemo's companion took the beast, threw it over his shoulder, and we continued our journey. For one hour, a plain of sand lay stretched before us. Sometimes it rose to within two yards and sometimes inches of the surface of the water. I then saw our image clearly reflected, drawn inversely, and above us appeared an identical group reflecting our movements and actions, in a word like us in every point, except that they walked with their heads downward and their feet in the air. Another effect I noticed, which was the passage of thick clouds, which formed and vanished rapidly, but on reflection I understood that these seeming clouds were due to the varying thickness of the reeds at the bottom, and I could even see the fleecy foam which their broken tops multiplied on the water, and the shadows of large birds passing over our heads, whose rapid flight I could discern on the surface of the sea. On this occasion, I was witness to one of the finest gunshots which ever made the nerves of a hunter thrill. A large bird of great breadth of wing, clearly visible, approached, hovering over us. Captain Nemo's companion shouldered his gun and fired when it was only a few yards above the waves. The creature fell stunned, and the force of its fall brought it within the reach of dexterous hunter's grasp. It was an albatross of the finest kind. Our march had not been interrupted by this incident. For two hours we followed those sandy plains, then fields of algae, very disagreeable to cross. Candidly, I could do no more, when I saw a glimmer of light which, for a half-mile, broke the darkness of the waters. It was the lantern of the Nautilus. Before twenty minutes were over we should be on board, and I should be able to breathe with ease, for it seemed that my reservoir supplied air very deficient in oxygen.' but I did not reckon on an accidental meeting which delayed our arrival for some time. I had remained some steps behind when I presently saw Captain Nemo come hurriedly towards me. With his strong hand he bent me to the ground, his companion doing the same to Conseil. At first I knew not what to think of this sudden attack, but I was soon reassured by seeing the captain lie down beside me and remain immovable.' I was stretched on the ground, just under the shelter of a bush of algae, when raising my head I saw some enormous mass, casting phosphorescent gleams, pass blusteringly by. My blood froze in my veins as I recognised two formidable sharks which threatened us. It was a couple of Tintoreus, terrible creatures, with enormous tails and a dull, glassy stare, the phosphorescent matter ejected from holes pierced round the muzzle, monstrous brutes which would crush a whole man in their iron jaws. I did not know whether Conseil stopped to classify them. For my part, I noticed their silver bellies, and their huge mouths bristling with teeth from a very unscientific point of view, and more as a possible victim than as a naturalist. Happily, the voracious creatures do not see well. They passed without seeing us, brushing us with their brownish fins, and we escaped by a miracle from a danger certainly greater than meeting a tiger full face in the forest. Half an hour after, guided by the electric light, we reached the Nautilus. The outside door had been left open, and Captain Nemo closed it as soon as we had entered the first cell. He then pressed a knob. I heard the pumps working in the midst of the vessel. I felt the water sinking from around me, and in a few moments the cell was entirely empty. The inside door then opened, and we entered the vestry. There our diving dress was taken off, not without some trouble, and fairly worn out from want of food and sleep, I returned to my room, in great wonder at this surprising excursion at the bottom of the sea. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed part 4 of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. If you did enjoy it, then please consider supporting The well told Tale on Patreon at patreon.com slash Tale. There's a link in the description. I'll be back next week with part 5 of the story. What next for our intrepid explorers? I hope you can join me.